0: Guys, would you join me in opening to Genesis 39? I felt like that video um, really kind of set the stage for what we're talking about this morning. Rising above temptation. Genesis 39. You know, last week we looked at Joseph rising above, uh, well, rejection. And one of the things that we run into is that I know when I'm speaking to a congregation about rejection, um, about rejecting other people, or experiencing rejection in your own life, there may be some that we're not really able to grab a hold of it so much because you know maybe, honestly, your life's circumstance or your situation or the path you've been on uh, hasn't really brought you to that place where you've experienced or suffered from rejection. Maybe your life isn't one that is crippled by a fear of rejection. And maybe, to be honest, you're a person who has been very inclusive to other people, gone out of your way to try to bring them in and to love them. And so maybe last week there were some of you that really struggled being able to grab a hold of that understanding of rejection. You haven't experienced it that much. But this morning, when we're dealing with the topic of temptation, I know um, that there is not one of us that it, that has not experienced temptation. There's that each one of us... Um, can honestly say this morning that we have been tempted, we are being tempted. There's not a moment where there's not a temptation to our flesh and our natural man. And and Joseph gives us a prime example. Joseph was indeed a man who was tempted. If you missed last week's message, you can scan the code in the, in the bulletin or you can just check us out online and find that and catch up with what he experienced yes, uh, last week. But you remember his brothers sold him into slavery. They were going to kill him, and then they decided they would just sell him. They kicked him out because they didn't like him, because of his dreams, because of the great love that his father had over them. They were incredibly jealous of him. So Joseph ends up uh, being sold to these Ishmaelite traders. The Ishmaelite traders take him off on their way to Egypt. They get to Egypt, and they sell him to a man named Potiphar. Do you remember the last point in, in last week's message on how do we... Handle rejection. One of the things I told you was we, there are some things we can't we can't do anything about. Joseph couldn't do anything about this. He was property, uh, no doubt. He was bound or caged as he was going uh, from his brothers to the Ishmaelites, from the Ishmaelites to Potiphar. There was a lot that was out of his control. He couldn't couldn't control it. But the great thing about it, and what I love so much about Genesis chapter thirty-nine, where it picks up in scene two of Joseph's life, we find him in Egypt. Egypt was incredibly prosperous. They were what we would consider the world superpower of the day. And Joseph finds himself there. But the great thing about it is that Joseph doesn't sink, sulk, or shrink. He doesn't spend his life in pity, uh, wallowing in depression over the fact that his brothers wanted him dead. He doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't allow that to restrict him. He continues being true and trustworthy and triumphant While he's there in Egypt. It didn't matter what scenario was playing out in his life. He was doing his very best to live a life that pleased God. And warranted God's greatest favor. But he does rise above temptation. And I want you to see in chapter 39. I want to read several verses here. Starting in the first verse. It said, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of all his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. And so it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was in all that he had, both in the house and in the field. Thus he left all he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had, except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife, cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time, when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and fled and ran outside. And so it was, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house, and spoke to them, saying, See He has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. Let me stop there. Um, Actually, look down at verse 19. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and there he was in prison. I guess the scenario that we're looking at is kind of the equivalent, the uh, pop culture equivalent of The Bachelor meets Desperate Housewives. It's kind of what's going on here. Joseph, uh, continuing to be diligent, continuing to be faithful, and his master's wife, uh, as the Bible says, casts longing eyes. Guys, if you're really wanting to get your wife's attention, use that phrase. They love it. I bet. Who, w- who wouldn't love that? I'm ca- if my wife said she's casting longing eyes on me, it's kind of... Shakespearean. I might have to play another video to get everything back on track. Notice for a moment before we get into how Joseph overcame this temptation, this this woman who was throwing herself at him. Notice, uh, if you will, just for a minute, that this temptation continued to grow. It seems that it started out with this visual of her saying, lie with me. And we get the impression from her saying, lie with me, that she's laying down and she's wanting him to to lay down with her. We kind of know what she's asking for there. So it starts with this verbal or physical, and then it moves up to this verbal, and then it continues to repeat. She's now continuing to ask him to lie with her. She's continually wanting him and making these offers to him to come in and to know her. But then the third one is when it actually escalates to the point of physical touch. It was not just enough for her, she could not stand the fact that he was standing strong against all of her attempts, that she then takes matters into her own hand, and she reaches out and grabs him in a desperate attempt maybe to play her final card, hoping that she might be able to get him to come to her, but but it didn't happen. You know, if you think about it, sin is often the same way with us. It starts out incrementally. It comes in very subtle, much like the serpent in the Garden of Eden was the most subtle beast of all the beasts of the field. It comes in very subtly and tries to attack us in our weakest moments. But then as we continue to stand strong, we can find that it gets more and more difficult over time as the onslaught of temptation continues. You saw that as the kids were in the seat longer... It became very difficult. Didn't you like the one blonde-headed boy who finally got to eat both? Didn't you like it when he picked it up and he put it down and he was like, ah, ah. The longer we're there, the longer we're in the presence of that temptation, the stronger it grows and oftentimes the weaker we can become to it. But I want to show you how Joseph overcame it. And what I love is that this story is back in the patriarchal period of the Bible. This is early stuff, guys. But yet what I have found is that these tools, this technique that Joseph used to stand against this temptation, back then, still work today. Aren't you glad to know that that the Word of God is always relevant and always applicable to our life? That it truly will withstand throughout all generations. Aren't you glad about that? We can go to God's Word and see that what worked back then still works today. The enemy hasn't changed his techniques. Look at verse number 8. His wife's casting longing eyes in verse 7, but he refused and said to his master's wife, notice what he says to her. Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. That's an important line. He has committed all that he has to to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I think the first step, first trick... First technique, first tactic, if you will, to overcoming temptation, that moment when we are confronted, we we see that it is sin, we've identified that it's wrong, we identify that it goes against the very will and the very heart of God, and we're saying, okay, Lord, it's here, I'm tempted to do it, whether it's lust or greed or envy or jealousy or hatred or bitterness, whatever that sin is that you're dealing with, when we have identified that, I believe one of the first techniques that we can employ is to get our head right. That's number one. Get your head right. Joseph had his head right. He knew exactly what he was thinking in just the right way. He knew two things. And if you think about it, he knew what he already had. Now think about this for a minute. He goes on to this, this, this wife who, who is now, now you know, being very suggestive with him. He is now saying, wait a second, you're wanting me to lie with you. But I want to tell you something. There is nobody in this house that is more powerful than I am. Your husband has given everything he has over to my care. You see, Joseph knew something that we tend to forget. Joseph knew that there was a transaction that takes place when we sin." Joseph realized that what she was wanting was going to be a loss for him. So he looks back at his life and says, wait a second, I got everything I need right here. You see, whenever we sin, there's always a transaction that takes place. We don't want to to forget that sin always costs us something. Always. And and the, the crazy thing is we tend to forget that. When we're tempted, we begin to look at what what that that, that temptation is, what the object of that temptation is, whether it's sexual or whether it's financial or whether it's power. We look at those things and somehow up here we think, you know what, I would be much better off if I had that. I would be much better off if I had that. It would add to my life. Does sin add to our life? You bet it does. It adds grief and misery and sorrow and disappointment and heartache and broken relationships. Sin does add to your life, but I don't think that's what you're wanting added to your life. A transaction, often what we give up are eternal blessings for temporal satisfaction or pleasure. We invest something eternal for something temporal. The best example, I think, is really the first sin in the Bible. Adam and Eve had everything they could have wanted. Uh, an unbroken relationship with God the Father. No doubt a perfect relationship between themselves as husband and wife. They were literally living in a paradise with, a, with a, a, a garden that was full of trees that they could have eaten, whatever tree they wanted except the one. And if you go back and remember that story, the enemy, Satan himself, had tempted Eve to the point where she believed that that fruit that God, would, that God told her not to eat was greater than any of the other fruit that she had available to her. Sin always costs us something. Sin cost Adam and Eve paradise. cost Cain his brother cost David untold blessings. It cost Moses the promised land. In the Old Testament, it cost a lot of the kings their sanity. If you think about the New Testament, sin cost Judas his reputation. It cost Ananias and Sapphira their lives. Sin always costs us something. My sin cost Jesus his life. Sin always costs something. What do we need to do? We need to get our head right. We need to be able to look at what we have, what we possess, who we are right now in God as believers, and be able to say, you know what, whatever that sin is, whatever that temptation is, if it's wrong, it is not going to add anything beneficial to my life. I am not willing to sacrifice an eternal blessing. I am not willing to sacrifice a great relationship. I am not willing to sacrifice the favor of God on my life. For this momentary pleasure. I'll tell you what. I find it incredibly ironic, especially now with current events, that this man of great power recognized his power, recognized his possessions, recognized his position, and used that as a tool against temptation. When it seems, oftentimes, many people of power and prestige and possessions That becomes a great stumbling block to them. And rather than using those things to say, hey, I've got this, I don't need sin. God has been good to me. God has blessed me. I don't need that. Instead of saying that, it seems that oftentimes the powerful, those with great possessions, seem to be the ones that are always on a quest to get more. First, get your your head right. Get your mind right. Secondly, get your heart right verse number 8, he speaks of two relationships. The two relationships he speaks of, first one is his master. My master told me, it's all mine, I'm in charge of all of it, but don't touch my wife. Joseph understood that if he engaged in that activity and yielded to that temptation that, again, it would cost him. But because of a great commitment, a great commitment to his master, he chose to not do it. His heart was right for his master. But I think the greatest of all relationships that he mentions is in verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In getting our heart right, it's not just to evaluate and stay committed to the relationships that we're indeed to be committed to, our wife or our husband or our children or, or our uh, bosses or whatever the case is, to stay committed to that relationship and understand that if I sin, it will it will affect that relationship somehow. But beyond that, to have our commitment level to the Lord be great to say, you know what? If I do that, I may have pleasure for a season, I may have satisfaction for a moment, but it is fleeting, it flies away, it does not last, and what it leaves behind are broken relationships, a lack of favor, uh, robbing myself of blessing, and I'm not going to do it. You see, something incredibly interesting about verse 9. Joseph knew that to take his master's wife was going to be sin. He knew that. How can I sin and do this great wickedness before God? Now what's ironic about this is that Joseph knew that taking his master's wife was sin, and yet the law was still over 400 years from being written that said, thou shalt not commit adultery. He did not have the Ten Commandments. He did not have the law of God to say, well, yep, God said don't, so I'm not going to do it. He didn't have that. He knew that to take a man's wife to take his boss's wife, was wrong. He understood. I believe there was that inner witness within him, that ability to know and to discern between good and evil. Here we have the Word of God. Here we have the Spirit of God. Here we have this inner witness or conscience, if you will, and yet it seems still sin abounds so great. But here is a man living in a pagan culture without the Word or the law of God to direct him. And yet, this man of great integrity stands before a great temptation. I say it's a great temptation. She may have looked like the Sphinx, for all I know. It may have been an easy decision, but he stands before—he stands before this great temptation. He stands before. The, you know, they talk about how Joseph looked, but they don't talk about how Potiphar's wife looked. Not to take anything away from his integrity. I totally forgot where I was. <laughs> I just have this picture of the Sphinx with no nose in my head, in my mind. Get your, if I don't know where I'm at, just recap, right? Get your head right. Remember what you have. Remember sin wants to take it away and rob you of that. Secondly, get your heart right. Stay committed to the relationships. Do you remember when someone asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was? Remember what he said in Luke 10? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and your neighbors yourself. You know what Joseph is doing here? It appears as though he's loving the Lord his God with his mind. He had his mind right. Oh, uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. It's going to take away from me, it's going to rob me of my blessing. It's going to rob me of this great favor I've experienced in life. It's going to take away. seems like he was loving the Lord with his mind. you know what? When he said, how could I do this great wickedness against God? I believe he was loving the Lord with all of his heart. All of his heart. And that leaves just two other things. His soul and his strength. Notice the third technique. Verse 12. Or verse eleven, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, that none of the men of the house was inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, "Lie with me." But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Get your head right. Get your heart right. Third, get away. Get out of there. The apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and in First Timothy chapter six, verse eleven. He's telling Timothy what it is to be a man of God. And in all the things that Timothy is, is instructed on what it is to be a man of God, the things he stands up for, the things he fights for, the things he does, Timothy, or Paul told Timothy also, but you, man of God, flee these things. He was telling him to run away from the love of money and the quest for power. What he was telling Timothy was a real man of God is not, just, is not just defined by what he stands up for and what he does, but a real man of God is defined by what he turns away from, what he runs from. And friends, let me tell you this. It appears that when Joseph had that garment touched and he takes off running, she did, she didn't, it did not appear that she pulled it off. It appears that he took off and left it in her hand. He was getting out of there. What was he doing? I believe he was loving the Lord, his God, with all of his strength getting out of the place you know we may say pastor number 3 is the toughest now we could we could debate and maybe you'll have some discussion as you're you're going to lunch or going home today you may have some discussion you may say in your mind well it, joseph probably shouldn't have been in the house if his master's wife wasn't there and that's true some of this could could be a result, I mean, some of our problems can be a result of us putting ourselves in situations that we shouldn't be in in the first place. Maybe not using wise decision making when we're we're confronted. We put ourselves in a bad situation and then we struggle to be able to get out of that. So some of that could be us not putting ourselves in the right place, but there's nothing in here that indicts Joseph for being in the wrong place at the right time. Nothing. There's nothing in his character or his body of work that leads us to believe that he went in there for the purpose of this action. It appears that everything he was doing was to be that of a level of commitment. great man of integrity for his master. It just so happens that his wife took advantage of that opportunity. But you say, man, number three is the toughest, Pastor. Number three is where the rubber really meets the road. Number three, all this other stuff is prep. Getting my mind right. Continuing to stay in a constant state of worship. Allowing my mind to be full of the Word of God and hold on to the promises. Continually taking spiritual inventory of what I have in my life and what I don't want to lose. But let me tell you something, guys. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, number three is tough, Pastor. I I find it very difficult to look away. Pastor, I find it very difficult not to touch. Pastor, I find it very difficult not to lie. It's tough to turn away. I really don't think that the problem is with number three. Because I really believe that if we get number one and number two right, I can't help but think the number three is only going to be a little easier, right? If my mind's right. And I look at that sin and I see it for what it really is. Something that wants to rob me something that wants to take something that God has in store for me greater, if I look at that and see what that truly is. And in my heart, I say, God, I I made a commitment to you. I made a commitment to my wife. I've got commitments all all around here, God. And I want to stay true to those commitments. And and we might say within our heart, God, I I love you more than that. God, or, or, or Bree, I love you more than that. My head's right and my heart's right. I don't think I'm going to have such a hard time. Turning my feet the other direction. You've heard people say before, I just couldn't help myself. Have you heard that before? Pastor, you don't understand. I just could not help myself. In the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said some very startling things. In chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and cast it away from you. That's my left. All right. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away. He goes on to say, if your right arm or right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it far from you. How many of y'all think Jesus was just saying that to get people's attention? It wasn't his custom to say things simply to get people's attention. What Jesus did was share the truth, and the truth often got people's attention because it ran so contrary to their worldview. So, Pastor, are you telling me this morning that if I can't stop sinning, I need to cut off my arm? Pastor, are you telling me that if what I look at on that computer screen, if I can't seem to control it, that I need to poke my eye out and throw it away? What I'm telling you is this. When Jesus said, if your right eye or your right arm offend you, cut it off. What he was saying is that we no longer have an excuse to say that I can't control myself. He was saying, you have the ability. You are a free will moral agent. You make the decisions. You see temptation. You are tempted as a believer. You see that coming. And he's saying in that, if you can't control it, you're fooling yourself because you can control it. If it's your hand is the problem, you cut it off and throw it away. There, you've taken care of the problem. If your eye is causing you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. You do, Jesus said, have the power to say no to temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 There is no temptation temptation that has taken us but that which is common to man but God is faithful and just and will not allow us to be tempted above that we are able but will with the temptation also make a way of escape the Bible reminds us we don't have to live as victims of temptation we don't have to live as servants of sin we don't have to continually take in all of these things of of the world and forfeit Our blessings. We can truly rise above every one of those things. We have the ability to say no. Get our head right. Get our heart right. And get away. It worked for Joseph. And it works for us. Let me share this brief little thing. Those of you that were paying attention when I was reading the Scripture, you probably caught on at the very end. Joseph did what was right, still went to prison as though he had done what was wrong. Obviously, Potiphar's wife lied and got Joseph in a heap of trouble. So some may try to rationalize this morning, well, it doesn't matter if you do the right thing. If you do the right thing, you may still get bad consequences. Well, let me tell you, nobody's ever, nobody's ever told you, Jesus didn't tell you, I don't think I've ever told you that doing the right thing is easy. Because it's not always easy. And some of you may say, you know what, Joseph lost his freedom, lost his position, and lost his reputation. Some of you may even try to make an argument that if he had yielded to that temptation, maybe he would have avoided that place in prison and been able to hold on to his freedom, been able to hold on to his position, and been able to hold on to his power. All of those things he had. I would tell you that I don't believe that that is the case because let me tell you this. When Joseph did what was right, yes, he lost his freedom, he lost his power, he lost his, his, his privileges, he lost possibly his reputation. You know the great thing about this story? A righteous man that was condemned ends up coming out of prison, being restored with his freedom, being restored with his reputation, and being restored with his power and possessions in a greater level than he had before. All those things that seem to be lost because of the lie of the wife. We're not lost after all. The great news is that as soon as Joseph went into prison, the very next verse says that the Lord was with him. You see, it tells us that Joseph wasn't doing what was right necessarily for worldly gain. He was doing what was right because he wanted to be right with God. The favor of God on his life, the blessings that God had given him were by far more important of more value to Joseph than any of the trinkets that the world tried to offer. Let's take inventory. Spiritually, right now where you sit, would you consider yourself to be a repeated victim of sin? To the point that it's no longer just this come and go relationship. Uh, Sin has permanently moved in. Maybe you're beyond the moving in. It's bound you up. Maybe, the, maybe in your life right now, you're at the bottom of this pit and you're looking up and it seems like that light at the top of that hole is so stinking far away, you don't know how you're ever going to get out. Can I tell you something? Get your head right. If you are a child of God, the next time that sin comes knocking on your door, the next time that sin says, hey, is anybody home? You can tell them that Jesus lives there. You see, the good news is this. You have tremendous blessings and value as a child of God. Get your head right. Know what you have. Do not be willing to give in to those temporal things and sacrifice those spiritual eternal blessings. Secondly, get your heart right. Maybe you need to work on that relationship, the worldly relationships. Maybe your level of commitment to your spouse is lacking. Maybe your level of commitment to your children is lacking. Maybe your level of commitment to your worldly boss is lacking. Maybe you're not showing that level of commitment to them, and maybe you're not even showing that level of commitment to God. God, you hate sin. God, you despise sin. And yet, here I am, so so willfully engaging in it. It breaks God's heart. It grieves God's heart when His children willfully sin and live lives of Void of the power that he provides for us. Get your heart right. Maybe this morning that's your decision. God, there are other things that are trying to capture my heart. God, I've allowed these other things to come between me and you. And this morning I want you to help me to remove that. I want my relationship with you and those primary relationships in my life I want them to be strong so that God when that temptation does come I can turn to them and I can have my head right I can have my heart right and it will help me get my feet away from this moment to turn and run from it Friends do you know Jesus Christ I told you that sin cost a lot of people through the Bible a lot of things and it's true that sin my sin your sin cost Jesus his life He died on the cross so that we would not be victims of sin, so we could be victors over sin. And if you do not know Jesus Christ today, let me tell you, that sin in your life is going to cost you eternity. God wants to know you forever, and He sent His Son to die in your place to take all of your sin and my sin, the sin of the whole world, upon Himself so that when He died, He died as a substitution for you and I. He died in our place. And today, the ball is in our court. The ball is in your court. To say, God, I, I know I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I have done wrong. I have lied, cheated, stolen. I have yielded to lust and temptation. God, I'm, I'm a sinner. I stand in front of you condemned. But today I know. Today I know that I can be forgiven from you. The Bible tells us that when we become saved, the Holy Spirit lives in us. and gives us the power to be the people that God has called us to be. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus? Maybe today you are saved, but you, you feel in your heart that God has called you to rededicate, that you're putting a line in the sand. You're saying, this is the moment, God. This is, this is something that has hit me right when I needed it to hit me, right where I needed it to hit me. And God, I'm repenting of this, and I am rededicating. I'm not getting saved again. I'm rededicating, recommitting my life to you. Maybe you know this morning that this is the place that God wants you to be a part of, this body, As we carry out his work in this community and across the world. Maybe in your heart that's what God has said this morning. I want you to be a part of this local church body. This family of believers. I don't know what your decision is. Baptism. Any of those decisions. But we're going to have a response time. And as we sing. If you're singing and you know you've got a decision to make public. I pray you would come. If you just this morning accepted Christ, I want to be able to know. I want to be able to talk with you about that. I've got people that are eager to be able to pray with you, pray for you, whatever that decision is. Maybe it's just a time of prayer laying before the Lord. Father, I thank You. I thank You, Lord, that You love us and You give us power to overcome sin. And God, I know many bear the scars that sin has brought. Physical, emotional, spiritual, relational scars. But God, You are the great healer. You cannot just heal those scars and mend those wounds. But God, You can give us the ability, the power to overcome. Help us, God, this morning to get our head right. Oh, that we are so unworthy of all of those blessings. Father, help us to get our heart right that we would have a commitment with you that is greater than all others. And in turn, help us turn our feet from sin. Lead us not into temptation. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.